Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Samoa has been in a political deadlock since elections last month with the FAST party, led by former Deputy Prime Minister Fiame Naomi Muta'afa, achieving a one-seat win over the ruling Human Rights Protection Party, which has been in power for decades. The country's caretaker Prime Minister, Turiupa Aono Salile Marikaoi, is refusing to concede, despite a swearing-in ceremony for Muta'afa and a declaration of victory taking place outside Parliament last week. To help us understand the situation facing our neighbours over in the Pacific, we're joined by Lefaoli Dion Enari, who's completing his PhD on Indigenous and Diasporic Culture over at Bond University. Lefaoli, thanks so much for joining us. Aloha. Pleasure to be here with you. <laughs> and so many of our listeners won't uh, likely have a, a great sort of understanding of Samoan politics. How would you sum up what's happened over there over the past couple of months? Ah uh, yes. Yeah, so what <laughs> what has happened uh, in essence in Samoa is we've had uh, elections where uh, the honourable Saofa Pitofia Me Mataafa Naomi Mataafa had won the election, and and so she's she's the prime minister elect, and the caretaker prime minister Tui Leifa is is trying everything in his power to retain to retain his position. As the Prime Minister, so yeah, Samoa's at a, some of them have called it a, a bloodless coup at the moment. Gee, and I mean, my understanding is the President-elect was formerly part of the Human Rights Protection Party, the one that has been in um, power in Samoa since 1982. Can you sort of, sort of flesh out a little bit of the backstory here too? Yeah, sure, certainly. So, uh, Fia Mayor is actually the Prime Minister-elect, the leader of the Fast Party, is actually the daughter of Samoa's first Prime Minister. Uh, so she, um, and she, she is also of Paramount Chief lineage. So uh, she, she was born and raised into the politics of Samoa. Uh, as a child, uh, her, her mother was also a um, a diplomat uh, uh, in New Zealand, a Samoan diplomat in New Zealand. As where uh, Tuila Epa was was South made, so he he does not come from a paramount chief lineage, and he worked his way through government uh, to the top to to become the prime minister for over twenty years. And so as we're watching this unfold over in Samoa, what's the, the sense among, um, I guess, Samoan community in Australia and, and elsewhere as, as well about, I guess, who the, the rightful leader is in this case and how it might play out? Yeah, so it's interesting to note um, that there are more Samoans that live outside of Samoa than in the island. Mm. So we have... Uh, the population of Samoa is roughly 200,000, and there's an estimated over half a million that reside outside of the island with a large percentage, with a large population here in Australia. Uh, through uh, discourse with family relatives and other Samoan academics around the world, it is quite clear that there is a large diasporic support for the FAST party. 
and and in on on island it's pretty even. So fast had only won by one seat. So so on island itself, it's quite um, fifty fifty. As where when you're speaking of Samoan diaspora who reside in New Zealand, Australia, and the US in particular, there's a large um, swing towards support for fast. And my understanding is that fast is a very new party. Yes, they're they're extremely new, and a lot of them are made up of former HRPP. Uh, uh, candidates. So it, it, it's been fast as less than a year old. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, want, I suppose a follow up question to that is in what sense is it a coup, like this bloodless coup? What In what sense can it be described as a coup, do you think? Yeah. So it's been described as a bloodless coup because. Parliament, the Parliament doors were locked last week when uh, the Honourable Fia Mayor Naomi Mata'afa was meant to be sworn in. And just the, the transition of power that's meant to take place has not occurred. And, and, and so that's, that's the coup part of the bloodless coup. And, and so then, of, and the fact that there's been no bloodshed yet, there's been no altercations is why they've they've described it as a bloodless coup at the moment. Yeah. I wonder if you can explain to us, um, Lefaoli, a little bit about Samoan political culture. I mean, it's interesting that this um, kind of deadlock has been going on for a little while now, but it seems, at least from the outside, to be very peaceful. Is there something about kind of respect for, um, I don't know, institutions and, and the process that, that you think reflects on um, the way that politics uh, kind of functions over there? You know, you raise a very uh, interesting and very valid point. Uh, the reason there's been no bloodshed is because of the... Uh, it's, it's how Samoa is politically set up. So Samoa is a perfect melding of the Westminster system, which uh, Australia adapts with the Samoan culture, and they work hand-in-hand in how Samoa politically shapes today. Uh, in terms of, yeah, you're absolutely right, the, the respect that Samoans have for one another is a huge contributing factor as to why there has been no uh, bloodshed. Also, um, just the tight-knit, how, how tight-knitly everyone is communicated, is, is sorry, um, connected with each other is also another reason. So there are many families who have members there are many individuals in Samoa who have family members that are on both political sides of the spectrum, so there wouldn't be um, bloodshed occurring out of difference of opinion for politically. So <laughs> there's, there's a lot of um, a lot of youth would not fight with their aunties and uncles and and um, cousins over differing of political views. So we're we're very lucky that Samoa is founded upon respect and, and dignity and humility as to why there's been no bloodshed so far. And is there is there a sort of a a split on on age is there in this election or or can we read any anything into that? Are, are younger people more likely to vote for fast or or do we not know that? Yeah, so there's not much data uh, out at the moment in terms of the voting patterns as to who would vote for FAST and who would vote for HRPP. However, I can absolutely confirm that the diaspora has a a massive lead, a leaning towards uh, the FAST party. 
So yeah, it, 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 the um, it's quite unclear at the moment. But I know after the elections have been confirmed, there'll there'll be much research going into the different voting patterns and the demographic. Can I ask also, like when you talk about the diaspora, is that because people, like, are more people voting outside the country than in? Just going by that, you know, earlier you sort of laid out the the numbers of people in country in Samoa versus outside. Yeah. Um, so it really matters what the diaspora um, thinks, I guess, or how 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 it votes. It's interesting because you cannot vote. Uh, in a Samoan election unless you've lived there for at least six months. So we don't have uh, diasporic voting. However, the diaspora have been very vocal in other ways. So fundraising, the the amount of money that's been fundraised from the diaspora to send back to help the FAST campaign is is unprecedented. And they've also been very vocal in um, commentary and, and, and on social media. We're speaking with Lefaoli Dion Inari, a PhD candidate over at Bond University, and we're speaking all about the kind of a, a political stalemate of sorts over in Samoa in the moment, following on elections uh, originally held back in April. And uh, it's interesting to hear about the sort of difference in leaning towards Matahafa among the diasporic community compared to those um, in the country itself. Given that she's quite a you know a figure that I imagine is very well known, who um, you know has a sort of direct lineage to Samoan institutional politics. Is there a sense that she does sort of represent change or more sort of a, a safe pair of hands that Samoans might think would be, um, you know, a, a very qualified person to be leading the country into the future? Yeah, it's quite interesting. The perception with her is is absolutely symbolic of change. Um, Tuila Epa has been our Prime Minister for over 20 years and I believe is the second longest-serving prime minister in the world. So um, I've, I've only ever known of Tuila Epa as prime minister growing up as a child. And I've, ever since I was born, the HR, his party has been the only party that's ever been um, in power. We really... I have. I really grew up in a one-party state uh, in terms of Samoa. So with, and so what else appears, uh, appeals with... Um, Sia Mayor is her her eloquent way she speaks. So she she is she speaks English fluently, uh, and many of her addresses are, are are very loving and and speak to humility. So that that's what's gotten the appeal. That's what's made her appealing um, the selection. And I mean, as president-elect, even she has made history because um, I understand Samoa has never had a female prime minister. Uh, And also, I mean, in reading about the the politics of the region as well, um, there's not so much female representation in the Pacific yet. Not many. I think it's like 6.4% of lawmakers are women, I read. So, So assuming she is sworn in and she does become the the Prime Minister, um, she will make history. Yeah, and it will be... uh, It will send such a powerful message, not only um, to the rest of Samoa, but the the region, uh, that not only will females able to participate in Parliament and politics, but they can also be the Commander-in-Chief, and that in itself would be an absolutely powerful message that would, re- that would resonate with generations to come. 
Have there been any particular issues that have been really prominent in the lead up to this election campaign and, and might be where I guess there's very clear differences between Fiamme and, um, and the Prime Minister she hopes to replace? Yes, so the main differences are the main differences that have been spoken by both candidates and the main difference as to where people sway really has to do with Samuel's relationship with China. So a lot of people that support Fiamir are in support of uh, decreasing our engagement with China uh, and um, decreasing the amount of money that we are, uh, decreasing the amount of development uh, in Samoa that are in partnership with China. As where uh, HRPP, Tuila Epa, and his supporters are very pro-Chinese development in Samoa. That's fairly fascinating. And I, I, I wonder also whether whether the pandemic has played into this election at all. I know certainly in Australia we've seen at the state government level anyway that it has been a factor. Has that been similar in, in Samoa? So in terms of the pandemic and the border closures and how it affects the politics in Samoa, it's affected the hundreds of thousands of Samoans that want to physically be there uh, during the, the, um, the, the democratic process. So it, in essence, it's really just left those that are, that locally, in Sa- that are locally in Samoa to... Um, to carry out the political dealings, if the if the borders were uh, open and we were able to move freely, freely, I can guarantee hundreds upon thousands of Samoans would have flown back to to Samoa for these elections. Yeah, really interesting. And and just lastly, I understand there is a court ruling happening today. You can perhaps fill us in on that. But do you think that has the potential to sort of break this? deadlock and, and lead to Fiamme being sort of properly inaugurated as, as the country's new Prime Minister? Yeah, it's interesting. I must say, um, because these are uncharted waters and, and these are unprecedented times, none of us truly know <laughs> what is going to happen uh, uh, next because we've never experienced anything like this in Samoa's uh in contemporary Samoan politics. So, the, um, yeah, the, the court, so there's currently a HRPP women's rights march occurring now in support of adding another female candidate from the HRPP party. Um, I, I believe the court dealings are still going on now, so anything's possible. Yeah, it, it really is an unpredictable, unstable time in terms of seeing what would happen next, yeah. And um, we are we, we do need to go, but I wonder if people are interested in following this story, um, the Faoli, where, where should they go? Where, where's the best source, you think, for Australian media anyway? Yeah, for um, so Samoa's main newspaper, the Samoa Observer, would, would be the best, but there's a Samoa's only um, daily newspaper and they have regular updates on the political happenings as they unfold. Well, it's been so great to have your insights on Triple R this morning. Lafaioli, thank you so much for educating us. And, um, and uh, yeah, let's wait and see what happens. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure for us
Lafayette Dion Inari there, a PhD candidate over at Bonn University researching Samoan um, uh, indigenous uh, and diasporic culture, um, filling us in on the political situation over there and um, learnt a lot in that interview. Really fascinating stuff. So we'll wait and see if that stalemate is broken anytime soon. It's- Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. And last week, the Uluru Statement from the Heart won the prestigious Sydney Peace Prize. One of those who accepted the prize was Pat Anderson, Alawa woman and powerful advocate in Australia and internationally for the health of Australia's First Peoples. Uh, Pat Anderson has served as co-chair of the Referendum Council, is the current chairperson of the Remote Area Health Corporation and the chairperson of the Lawcher Institute. Uh, Welcome to Triple R, Pat. It's wonderful to have you with us this morning. Good morning to you, Charlie and, and Dylan. Nice to be on. Thank you. That's Thank great. Ah, oh, that's really great to have you. And I know it's um, a, a busy week for lots of people. And um, but I really wanted to um, take the time, you know, the moment to, to congratulate you and and everybody involved for the win uh, at the Sydney Peace Prize for the Uluru Statement of the Heart. And I wonder, I mean, what was your your feeling when you heard that 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 it had won that prize? You know, I thought, I thought immediately, I was a bit stunned, or a lot stunned, but my immediate thought was to all of those people, I could, it's like all their faces flashed before me, all those people that attended that regional dialogue process around the country who gave up three days, you know, including the weekend, to sit around and talk about quite difficult, you know, for some people, an abstract subject, but nevertheless, everybody spoke from the direct experience, so... The prestigious awarding of the Sydney Peace Prize is a real tribute to all of the First Nations peoples who were at the process and many people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and others, who support the Uluru Statement over the last, well, long time, uh, four-year period. It's a a real tribute and it was a real honour for um, Megan, Noel and I to, on behalf of all of those people, to receive... to be the recipients of the... Uh, to be there physically to receive the award. But that yeah. was under the announcement. All the galas and everything happened in November. Oh, the fun part's still to come. Just, yeah, that was just the first <laughs> bit. <laughs> Great to hear. Well, um, I wonder if you can take us back to when the Uluru Statement from the Heart was, was drafted back in 2017. And I guess what specifically you really wanted it to say and what you wanted it to achieve um, at those dialogues and at that convention um, four years ago? I think the statement speaks for itself. I don't want it for any, anybody yeah. who reads, reads the statement. I think it's very clear. It's very eloquent, eloquent rather, and it's very eloquent. So I, 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 I think people just need to read um, the statement. It's very clear uh, what we're asking for. You know, the three, the, the three uh, big asks, but it's set um, in very um, plain, I think, um, language. It's the latest attempt by us, the tradition, the, the uh, the original people, the first peoples of this country, is yet another ask of the, of the uh, Australian population. We've been doing this since pretty much about 1780, uh, 1788 rather, and uh, it's this generation's turn. And what's on the table uh, is the Uluru Statement from the Heart seeking to be heard or to sh- for us to be able to share in the power 
and to make decisions on behalf of all those issues that affect us. Up until now, we and we today still are excluded uh, from making any of those uh, of those decisions. Uh, the uh, the latest equivalent of the Native Affairs Department uh, is still doing the same thing, and that's enough. We've been on this continent, you know, as as the, as the scientists' the tools get more sophisticated. We've been on this landmass for 100,000 years, for goodness sake, and uh, we're still acknowledged. I mean, come on. And, I mean, you've said, Pat, that the Uluru Statement was an invitation to the Australian people to walk with First Nations people. And do you feel that we're starting that walk? Have we, have we taken steps? Look... I don't want to be um, too too confident, but I have to say and acknowledge we are almost daily getting more and more um, support from across the country, from individuals, from groups, from organisations. Um, so the, the support base is growing and it's now getting um, quite wide. You know, we're, we're getting support from um, a lot of the faith-based organisations from um, multicultural um, societies and what have you, um, ordinary people, you know, just out there going about their daily lives like me and you. Uh, so it, 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 it is growing. Um, so I'm, um, I, I think we, we, we were correct, we were absolutely right to gift the statement to the Australian people because it's, after all, it's just people who decide at referendums. I know we need the governments to set them all up and what have you, but it's the people who decide what kind of, of what, what kind of a society we are, who we are, what are our values, what are our values, what do we stand for? So in 1967, you heard our our cries, and this 54 years later, we're going back to the Australian public and asking you again to support us. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, describing it as a gift is such a, a generous offer. And anyone who's read the statement would know that, um, you know, it's really beautifully written. It's quite succinct. So some who haven't read it might think that it that is a very long statement, but it, it's quite sort of straightforward in, um, in acknowledging uh, what sort of needs to happen, specifically with regard to a voice to parliament and a Makarata commission, a truth-telling process to sort of go alongside with that. I, I guess in terms of those two uh, key proposals, how do you view progress towards making them ev an eventuality? Well, first of all, we've got to go to a referendum. Um, and what we're, what we're doing now, we meaning all of those who are, of us who are part of this campaign, is educating again, to going, we'll go out now in earnest and talk to the Australian public, wherever people might be, wherever clusters of groups might be, to inform people about what we did, why we did what we did, um, what it all means to educate them and get them ready for a referendum. And in the meantime, we're asking the general public out there to um, talk right to your federal member, to your state member, even to your local council, or anybody that's in influence in your town, in your family, in your community, um, to let them know that you support um, the Uluru Statement from the Heart and want the government to go to referendum to enshrine uh, a voice in the Australian Parliament, not a legislated voice to government. We do that now. That's the point. We've been... To us, all of our generations have been talking to government of all kinds of political persuasions forever. 
So there has to be a real change. There has to be some real um, structural reform because everything else really hasn't worked. And, you know, I just I really love the way that the Uluru Statement website and I urge people to really go and read the yes. statement, have a look at the website, but I, I just love how clear it's spelt out um, what mm. is actually being proposed here, that there are three changes being called for. One yeah. requires a referendum. One is a legislative change and the other is the running of, uh, of, a, of the Makarata Commission. And I think really stepping it out as, as you're doing now, Pat, but also stepping it out, you know, digitally, wherever it can be um, articulated and, and explained yeah. to people is so valuable because we did have that muddying, didn't we, when the Uluru statement was first presented, that it was muddied by by people. Um, but now it is actually just so clear what's being called for. And I, I imagine that clarity, just that, that really clear messaging yeah. is going to make a huge difference here. And, and Talia, we see the... Um the Makarata and the treaties process or the agreement-making process going together because they are associated. But there is, there is, the sequence is really important that we have a voice, the voice first enshrined. It's the only, only constitutional change is enshrining the voice um, in the Constitution. And that way we have our own place our own people who will decide the process for both of the Makarata and the, and the agreement making and settlements and what have you. So we will be in charge. That the agency won't be selecting this one, that one, no, not that one, no, no, not you, this one, as it's always done in the past. And that doesn't say anything about those people at all that were selected. I'm talking about the process. So the process, we have, to, we have to be in charge of the process and not let the government of the day make those same choices that they've been making, like, forever. So that's, that's one thing that's, that's really, uh, really important. So that's, that's the process. And the other thing, in terms of getting um, the information, if you like, or the messaging out there, people might like to go to our site, the UlluruStatement.org, but also on the SBS site. We have the Uluru Statement now in, um, I think, about 62 different languages. So if you speak Hindi or Mandarin, you can click on that name and it, your language will come up. We're also beginning to put on there now a series of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages. They're a little more, little more labour-intensive and getting them on the site, but SBS, together with, in cooperation um, with us, will be, we'll begin to put some of those languages, uh, I think, this week. Uh, on their site and our site as well. So I think we've got about 17, for the moment, we've got 17 languages from the Northern Territory, uh, four from the north of WA, and we're waiting on, at any moment, we're going to get um, three Torres Strait Islander languages. There are only three, but we'll have those as well. We're working on those very hard to get them up um, as soon as possible. And we will continue to grow that collection as these translations come to hand. So... There's our site, there's the languages, so there's quite a lot of information that is already out there for people to just uh, press the button and try to find out a little bit. Because that's going to be a feature uh, of this campaign, is that the general public out there are going to have to do a little bit of work here. They are going to find out a little bit more about it. We'll go around and talk to as many people as possible, and we have been doing that for four years and kept it alive, not just us, but a whole lot of other people as well. So it requires people to, it's not, I don't think it's acceptable to say, well, 
I haven't read it or I don't know anything about it. You've just got to Google and find the site and find out. Um, Absolutely. It's pretty simple. It is. And we need your support. You know, we can't do this ourselves as we couldn't do it in 67. You know, we can't, and we can't do it ourselves now. We, we really need that help and we need for you to make the, the general public to make informed decisions. We're speaking with Pat Anderson all about the Uluru Statement of the Heart, which recently was announced it took out the Sydney Peace Prize. Um, huge achievement, of course, the Uluru Statement originally drafted in 2017. And on that issue, Pat, I mean, it's been suggested by some in the government that, uh, you know, you don't rush into a referendum, pointing to a number of uh, failed referendums in Australia's history um, and that, uh, you know, essentially, in some ways, if you read between the lines, the Australian people can't sort of be trusted to vote yes. What's your sense of of whether we're kind of, you know, well-placed to have a referendum tomorrow as soon as possible to to put this out to the Australian people? Look, you know, this is this this current process, you know, looking at the Uluru Statement from the heart, is the end of a, um, a currently a 10-year process. But the process, as I said earlier, goes right back since the first boats um, came here. Um, so it's been a long... We've been a long time. And, you know, a feature of all of these um, events over all this time, us, us, you know, asking you to recognise, acknowledge us, accept us... Um, it's been going... Look, William Cooper in the 30s said, call for a voice to Parliament. So everything we're saying now, someone, often a relative, has said it all before. And this idea of, well, we don't want to go to a referendum in case we lose, and it's a bit of a circular a circular kind of argument, really. So, you know, you're not going to do something in case... It's a really... It's a very poor premise, isn't it, to not do something because you're afraid you might lose. I mean, really, come on. You need What needs here is some imagined. We have to reimagine what this great country of ours could be and we can do better um, than we're doing now. I honestly believe that. And, I mean, you've, you've said before, Pat, that, um, you know, our... Well, well, really, we need to embrace change and our, our elected leaders sh- should not be afraid of change, but do you still feel that there's a lot of fear there, do you think? Oh look, I think I think there is, but you know, we've had fear before. I remember when the, we were talking about land rights and the legis- national legislation failed, and then we tried again, and finally we got land rights around the country. I'm not kidding. There was letters in the paper and articles written about how, a bit like you know, third chamber of the parliament, how all of their backyards now were in danger of Aboriginal people coming in and, you know, taking over your backyard. And I remember, too, the story with the handbag, um, you know, with the, uh, the uh, of Uluru, that um, somehow or other, get this, we were going to tie a rope around, around it and tow it somewhere else, <laughs> for goodness sake. Come on. This is ridiculous. I mean, how ridiculous can you be? Come on. Yes, very much hear you there, Pat. You know, we've had all this before, all these kinds of arguments and this fear-mongering and, you know, what are are we going to do, for goodness sake? What can we do? We have no power, for starters. What can we do? 
Yeah, and and I suppose reflecting on the Uluru statement from the heart, of course that was written four years ago, and, and now it's it's won the Sydney Peace Prize. Do you think it has at all grown in stature, or, or grown at all in significance in the years since? I think over the four years it has, and I think winning the Peace Prize is a testament to that. Um, it, that's a, that's a, a, an amazing um, award. Um, to the statement and uh, it will provide I think a bit more focus for it and it might perhaps um, assist some people out there who are sceptical or you know saying I haven't read it to say well maybe I better go and find out about this maybe it's important so that's all good that's not bad that's not a criticism I think that's good well, thank you so much that's for spinning. How, that's how change happens. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, thank you so much for all that you do, Pat. And um, thank you for spending some time with us on Triple R and and just you know reminding people what the Reconciliation Week theme is this year, which is more than a word. Reconciliation takes action, and you've given us lots of actions um, that we can consider taking. And we are going to play the Uluru Statement of the Heart. So if you haven't read it, we're actually oh. going to play it to you right now so that you can hear it and um, we urge you to share the Uluru Statement um, in many languages as Pat just explained so you can share it with friends, family, here and everywhere and we urge you to do that and um, and all the best also uh, Pat with your oration um, tomorrow night um, and uh, yeah and no doubt we'll be able to hear that as well. Um, okay. Thanks thank, so much. Thank you both. Thank you both for having me on the radio this morning. I appreciate it. Have a good one. You too. See you. Pat Anderson um, speaking there about the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which won the Sydney Peace Prize, and Pat was one of three people that received that prize on behalf of that win. Uh, And now we're going to play the statement now. gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands, and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did, according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land, or Mother Nature, and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom remain attached thereto and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise? The peoples possessed a land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years. 
with substantive constitutional change and structural reform. We believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionately, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alienated from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for our future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement-making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Triple. And if fossil fuel companies haven't heard it already, last week's wake-up call on climate, which sounded in the United States, the Netherlands and here in Australia, is likely to have got through. Uh, So-called dissident shareholders have won two seats on ExxonMobil's board of directors. A court ruling in the Netherlands on Shell's emissions made an order for them to be cut by 45% over the next nine years compared to 2019 levels. And here in Australia, a court said the Environment Minister does have a duty of care to future generations in a case brought by students um, around the approval of a coal mine. And Cam Walker's following all these things. Um, he's with Friends of the Earth and he's here to pick through these significant cases with us. It's great to have you, Cam. Good morning. Thanks. Good morning. And maybe we can just go overseas first. Um, and the the shareholder case, what happened with ExxonMobil? Yeah, well, this actually was really interesting because ExxonMobil, you know, anyone that's old enough to remember the Exxon Valdez, like they really are one of the the, the longest-running climate villains and they've been very unreconstructed um, in terms of their how they've put their investments. So a lot of the large fossil fuel companies like Shell are starting to shift their portfolios over into renewables and ExxonMobil has been much slower than the others. Uh, but, yeah, there was a, a move. Um, they've got a 12 
three-person board that manages the company, and um, as a result of movement by institutional shareholders, they voted to, rem- to remove two of the existing board members and replace them with candidates that were put forward by an activist group called Engine Number no. 1, which is like an activist. Ec- activist hedge fund kind of group. So that's quite a significant shift. Two out of 12 people uh, coming onto a board that's known for being very intransigent on climate change and on investment in fossil fuels. And now they've got two people that are basically there because of their commitment to act on climate change. And there's an interesting bit of detail in that, actually, um, that the kind of the case that was put forward by this activist group was explicitly linked to the fact that um, Exxon's economic performance really wasn't doing very well, and that was because it was failing to invest in low-carbon technology. So they're appealing to shareholders' kind of sense of the greater good, but they're also saying, look, investment in fossil fuels doesn't make good sense uh, economically either. Yeah, really interesting case. And, and how do you imagine this might play out on the board itself in terms of the kind of strategizing for the the company going forward? Well, it set a very clear message from the shareholders. And I guess, you know, boards are empowered to run organisations, but they always have to keep at least half an eye on what the shareholders want. And so if the shareholders have made it very clear that they want a more progressive, you know, more science-based approach um, to how decisions are taken at the top of the organisation, I think that they would ignore that sentiment at their peril. So I would suspect it's obviously very early days, but... um, you know, I think that many people that are institutional shareholders as well as individual shareholders in the large institutions, they're just thoroughly sick of inaction. And um, you know, there is a sense that the world is shifting, that investment is shifting. I, I read somewhere that investment in non-fossil fuel developments had gone up three times like by a factor of three um, and was now worth several trillion US dollars um, just over three years. So the tide is really shifting and I think these big companies have to just kind of accept the, the reality, even the ones that have been very, very slow at moving like ExxonMobil. And I, I mean, look, these things play out over months and, and years. So I'm not saying that um, it's happened in the last week. We got that um, that that decision. Well, we heard about the shareholder um, new directors being um, put on the board there at ExxonMobil last week. But it was also last week that we um, were still hearing from the International Energy Agency, really saying that you know fossil fuel investments from now on um, really aren't in the interests of of um, people or planet or economics and so this is all sort of coming together um, at the same time which I guess is a coincidence but uh, do you think that also um, gave more potency to this um, decision over at um, at ExxonMobil? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that statement by the International Energy Agency was particularly important. You know, they're not they're not known as advocates of renewable energy. You know, they're they're very conservative, and yet they have now come out and said, look, you know, the time for new coal is over, and we've you know the time of fossil fuels is rapidly closing. And I think that that actually sets a pretty remarkable kind of shockwave through the investment investment community. You've had a whole range of investment. 
uh, firms, of banks, of large companies that are adopting shareholder resolutions on climate change. It it really is a you know a, a kind of unstoppable force at this point, and it's driven by absolute just kind of frustration at the lack of action at the federal level. So here in Australia, we have a government that's just continually failed us on on climate change. It's stuck in this kind of culture war loop that won't even accept that climate change is you know is something we need to act on. As a result, the states and territories are getting on with the job. So all the Australian states and territories have net zero emission targets by 2050 already, and that was a result of the federal government failing us. And the business sector and the community sector and individuals are getting on with it as well. So I really feel that you know th- this is a point of no return. Um, it is a, you know a point that's been a long time coming. The Shell case that happened last week, which was driven by Friends of the Earth in the Netherlands, that that sort of legal work started in 2004, I think it was, um, when we started to investigate oil spills in the Niger Delta. And I think in 2008, we took the first case against Shell for pollution, oil pollution in the Niger Delta. And that went through appeal after appeal and court after court and ended up in the hard. And I think the final determination only happened at the start of this year and was found in favour of Friends Earth and the local plaintiffs. So, you know, that's more than 15 years, you know, on this one company. All of these court cases that have been happening, all of these resolutions that are happening, all of these shifts that have been happening have resulted from the hard work of many, many people over many, many years. Exactly but it's right. Certainly starting to Playoff. Yeah, and exactly right. And I mean, we've spoken to you about those cases with Shell before, but then to come out with this, um, you know, statement from the court that they um, must cut emissions by forty-five percent by twenty on twenty by twenty thirty on twenty nineteen levels. This is what came out of the case, the Shell case in the Netherlands. Um, is that unprecedented? As I understand it, it is, yes. So basically, um, the judge noted that Shell had committed to do certain things under climate change, but basically said, look, you're moving too slowly. Um, the judge expressed concern about the non-binding nature um, of, of Shell's commitments, and this is an ongoing problem. Companies love to say, oh, we're green and we're going to do this, but, you know, it's not actually binding. So there's a deeper conversation here around how do we govern the large transnational organisations. We know that a handful of, TN, of transnationals have caused most of the pollution that's felt around the world that's now manifesting as climate change. And most of the regulations are, you know, self-regulation and self-binding regulations. So this was really important in that the judge said, no, actually, you have an onus. There is an onus on the industry to act and that you need to start doing it now and that it was predicated also on uh, human rights law. And I think that that's really important because those human rights, the right to life, for instance, and the UN's guiding principles, you know, they are universally applicable. So it actually... It's not that the law, the legal system is different here. We're not going to be able to initiate a similar case here in exactly the same way. But those global guiding principles of right to life, the human right to life, um, you know, can be found anywhere. So I think that it really does set in place options for similar court cases in many jurisdictions. We're speaking with Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth about a number of recent court cases relating to climate action and also shareholder activism as well. And to mean, sort of to pick up on that, that point about what kind of precedent some of these cases might set, I mean, as you outlined, often there's a real 
incredible hard slog that goes into these court cases playing out over many years. And then we have a result, um, you know, in favour of Friends of the Earth Netherlands in relation to Shell most recently. But how do you see the broader trend, I suppose, or is there a broader trend, do you think, in terms of uh, people who are trying to advocate for climate change being more willing to push for change uh, through the courts? I think that more and more people follow the avenues that are open to them. So the states and territories, as I mentioned before, are getting on with the job, but we have a federal government that's just intransigent. And so people seek opportunities. If one door is closed, then you pursue the next door to achieve your goal. And I think that's why, to a very large degree, people are moving into climate litigation and class action and that sort of thing and legal challenges because governments at the federal level just simply aren't listening to the science. So, you know... Often the conservative media gets angry and says, oh, you know, it's, it's these, these climate activists are slowing down the gas-led recovery and, you know, they get all, a little bit hysterical about it. But people are only doing it because we have been failed by our governments and that's a really important point to understand. And people will continue to pursue legal ap- action where that is really the only way that we're going to get change. So the, the eight high school students who launched that class action Uh, and there was a determination in the federal court here in Australia uh, last week. You know, that was fantastic, but that was also because they were just very frustrated at the lack of action by the federal government to take climate change concerns seriously into account when assessing whether to approve things like coal mines. And, I mean, in that case, Cam, um, my understanding is that the the company will continue to do what it was going to do, um, uh, Whitehaven, but that now the federal environment minister's responsibilities have been spelt out. And I wonder... um, what might come of this? Like, what does this actually um, move forward, I guess? I mean, I, I got very inspired to see the students hugging each other on uh, out the front of the court. Um, it was a real moment of, of hope, I think, and, and empowerment. Uh, but what, what can come of this, do you think, now? Yeah, it was very hopeful, and it's indicative of the way we have this entire new movement of young people, of students and others that are driving amazing action on climate change. It is so inspiring. Now, the judge didn't go as far as issuing an injunction against the approval of a mine expansion in New South Wales, but they did say that approving the mine would have had a small but foreseeable impact on climate change, and that it would increase the risk of inverted commas, catastrophic um, impact or harm, which would impact on young people in future. So that, as a precedent statement, is actually pretty important. And there's a very long-running conversation in Australia around our federal environmental laws and the fact that there isn't an adequate trigger on climate change to require the federal environment minister to intervene in approvals. So... It is a really good precedent and it hopefully down the track will bring about greater attention to the climate change implications of decisions regarding coal, oil and gas when they appear in the federal realm and the minister is is required to consider them. And just lastly, Cam, I wonder if we can get your thoughts on the by-election in um, the Upper Hunter region of New South Wales. What's your, your takeaway from that? Very interesting, isn't it, uh, when you think that a major focus of this was the question of the future of coal. And the Upper Hunter is, of course, a, a region that has had coal mining for a very long time, but it also has 
a very strong horse and agricultural sector and a tourism sector which is directly impacted by coal. And the, the, the take you can kind of lift from the outcome is either local people wanted to see coal mining or the problem is when you have major parties that want to back coal, where do people go? And there's been some really interesting analysis done of the fact that um, the, the two main parties were seeking to uh, neutralise the swing to independence and smaller conservative parties and that's why they took such a strong position in support of coal remaining as part of the energy mix in the upper Hunter Valley. So it was complex and um, I think that you really can't translate out and say, oh, well, climate change doesn't matter and coal doesn't matter because clearly it does at a continental scale, certainly at a state scale across Australia and even at that local level, which is borne out by some of the detail once you drill into that by-election. Yeah, and I think the nuance that you point to there is really important to understand. And I, I guess I've been wondering, even coming, particularly coming out of the Shell case, that uh, we we have many pillars of our democracy, and, and the courts are one of them. And this idea that you know nation states are the ones that that sign up to say the Paris Agreement and have the commitments made against it, but it is, as you pointed out earlier, Cam, major companies that are you know responsible really for the for the emissions that the the majority of emissions in the world and so we could see the courts step in where politicians don't and this is where for local communities things like transition plans are so vital because those decisions may ultimately in some cases not be in the hands of their elected leaders. Yes, true. And we can't give up on federal action because it is nation states that sign up to those agreements. But we have to accept that the current government is not interested. And so we need to really deepen our level of commitment to all the other levels of change, which includes what local governments can do, what local communities can do, what state and territory governments can do, and what corporations can do. And we do know that 20 of the the mining and the fossil fuel companies are responsible for a third of all the greenhouse gases that are being produced in the last couple of decades. So I think they are a very appropriate target for legal action. And I saw a great quote in The Guardian last week in covering the court cases, which noted that the world's patience with the fossil fuel industry is wearing thin, and that's what's being played out now in courts and also, um, I think, in boardrooms, and that's really heartening. Well, thanks so much um, for spending time with us, Cam. It was a last-minute request to get you on because we wanted to, to hear some hopeful news today. So, yeah. Thanks for being flexible too, and we'll catch you again in a month's time. Thanks. Talk to you then. Bye-bye. See ya. Um, Cam Walker is with Friends of the Earth. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.